This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. And welcome to the Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. She's Mia, I'm Scott, and today we're looking at chapter 18 of A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 4. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Catelyn and Sir Roderick arrive at King's Landing by ship. At a secret meeting with Peter Baelish and Varys, Catelyn is told the assassin's knife belonged to Tyrion Lannister. Ooh, goody, goody, goody. Two of my favourite characters and one of Mia's. <laughs> Is that fair to say? I don't even know who my favourite characters are anymore. <laughs> except Sansa and Cersei, obviously. <laughs> so if you're wondering who I'm talking about, uh, this is the chapter where we are introduced to Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, and Varys, the spider or the master of whispers. So both of these characters are often held to you know, embody the dramatic intrigue and the surveillance and the politicking that characterizes the political side of A Song of Ice and Fire, um, which we get a glimpse of in this chapter itself. And so they are somewhat emblematic of the political drama of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire and its appeal. So initially, I was thinking about having a chat around the idea of these characters as Machiavellian and whether or not the text as a whole is a Machiavellian text. Listeners, I realized kind of as we got closer to the recording date that I really didn't want to have that conversation. (laughs) Um, But I also feel like if we had gone in that direction with this topic, we would have ignored, uh, I guess, the third important character that's introduced in in this chapter, which is King's Landing itself. And, you know, it is no accident that our introduction to Littlefinger and Varys goes hand in hand with our introduction to King's Landing as a place. It's the capital of of the Seven Kingdoms. It's where the royals live and where the Iron Throne is located. So it is effectively, you know, what everyone's fighting over or being drawn into conflict over. And, you know, as a place... It is just as thematically emblematic of the political drama as our two schemas, in fact. And this got me thinking about, you know, how we sometimes talk about the role of place within fiction. You might be familiar with phrases like place as character, or you you have to provide a strong sense of place in your writing, uh, both within creative writing workshops, as well as um, coming out through the critical analysis of creative texts like TV shows and books and whatnot. Um, But what is meant by place here and how might these approaches to space and place align or deviate with how these concepts are deployed uh, within fields like cultural geography? So that's what our topic's going to be today. So Mia, as someone who not only engages in critical analysis, obviously, but um, also has an interest in creative writing yourself, how do you understand the phrase place's character? Yeah, so my understanding is really something that has been attained in passing. Like, uh, it's not something that I have read any theory on, or if I have, I've forgotten. So, uh, but my understanding of the idea of place as character is thinking about something that ostensibly is just a geographical location 
as actually being a character in and of itself in in a story. So the the example when we were briefly chatting about this, Scott, that you used is Hogwarts. Hogwarts is very much a character in the Harry Potter series. I mean, and also quite literally in the series because it, it can defend itself and it's got a mind of its own, but I don't think that's really a necessary thing. So some other examples that come to mind are things like Pemberley in Pride and Prejudice or like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, these places that they're not just a setting, they kind of have almost a personality of itself. Like you can think about the character of that place as its own presence in the story. I do think it's important to distinguish between places character from phrases like the character of a place. Mm. Character of a place, these tend to be claims about the defining characteristics of a place, as in its physical geography and the people who live within it. So you might think of, for example, claims that the construction of high-rise buildings and is against the character of a neighborhood, which mm. is predominantly not that. And we can see how these concerns can also align with exclusionary and prejudicial claims uh, about demography. Uh, for us Australians, you might think about the resistance to a mosque being built in the Victorian small, small city of Bendigo, for example. So in that sense, uh, claims about the character of place take on a much more insidious and nasty flavor but places character as as you said Mia you know it it suggests that there is more to it than just a setting right it has a presence within the narrative beyond this a degree of personification worthy of being named the cast member itself like you said with Hogwarts and you know um, sometimes that does mean there is a semblance of sentience or, or thinking or activity with the place itself so Hogwarts obviously other times the narrative itself can be said to paint a portrait of the place. The, the first time I heard this phrase was uh, in analyses of The Wire, how it gradually, for its various seasons, painted more of a picture of Baltimore, the city of Baltimore in its various dimensions and degrees. Um, so by the end of it, by its finale, when it had that really extended montage of a whole range of locations and people located in Baltimore, you can definitely say the series is as much about Baltimore, Maryland, as it was that the actual crime plots taking place within it. Other times, place itself might have its own arc, like uh, with the Battlestar Galactica, which is also the name of the TV show. It, it goes through a set of changes itself, or, or the Shire in, in Lord of the Rings, particularly the novels, going from the idyllic pastoral English countryside to its raising by the end of, of book three, which Martin was a massive fan of. Some places in A Song of Ice and Fire, like Winterfell and, and King's Landing, especially in the show, I, I feel fit in here uh, in terms of having their own arcs. Uh, so in a way, this aligns with how place might thematically embody aspects of the text as well. You might think of Winterfell as the warmth in winter, like it's literally, its walls are warm and repel the winter. As we get in this chapter, King's Landing, it embodies corruption and constant surveillance, literally through the story of Magor and its secrets and its walls. Like its walls are hollow, you know, it's tainted by blood. So it represents the corruption and the surveillance at the at the core of the politics of Westeros as, as a realm as well. Yeah, I, I think that one thing that kind of struck me about the Game of Thrones show is, of course, the the title sequence, which is all about the geography and mm. the and not just the geography. Cause it's not like we're just going across a fantasy map where we see these like huge scapes of land. We're seeing these specific 
buildings and them coming together and it's a very dynamic introduction and every introduction is a little bit different so I I think that introduction really does kind of show just how important these locations are in and of themselves I mean it is a very common thing in a tv show to have clips of each of the primary characters in it and sometimes those primary characters are literally signaling to us like who is most important so like season by season you will get a different group of people that are there and sometimes they will kind of come and go. Uh, so I, I think the the choice to instead of focusing on characters to focus on these buildings, yeah, it does really resonate with how important these places are as characters in the show and how distinctive they are. And also how like the characters will change a lot more than the, the buildings do. Like, the, I mean, we do have some destruction <laughs> That happens. <laughs> Winterfell <laughs> and King's Landing would beg to differ, yeah. but yes, broadly speaking. But certainly, like, as as kind of these, again, if we're thinking of them as characters, they're a lot more present in this kind of continuing sense in, mm. in the series than the characters are. The characters come and go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the places will stay and they'll often outlive the, the characters that we kind of associate with those places. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I love how you, you sort of highlight how the show is more concerned with telling you these are the places that matter. Mm. Yeah, and there's a clear distinction between these these places are places as opposed to you know, the sort of abstract way in which we understand space. Like space, space is everything. It, it underpins all these sort of geographic concepts of place and landscape and territory and stuff but ultimately place is meaningful that's the difference between the two yeah and I think I mean I know we're we're veering a little bit into the show here as opposed to the books but I I think what's also interesting about that title sequence I actually just pulled up some images now to look at it again is first of all the fact that it like episode to episode it's focusing on the most important places for that episode so it'll linger more in particular places that are gonna be the focus but also it's an incredibly like the Style-wise, it's very material. Like, you get this sense of it just kind of being there and being three-dimensional um, in a way that, like, it's it's more... I guess the best way I could describe it, it's more like an object than a space, if that makes sense. Like, it's a thing that you can see and you feel like you could kind of wrap your hands around. And you get these different perspectives. You can kind of see these bird's-eye views of these cities and you get a different sense. And I think that's... That's doing a different thing. It's not doing a better thing, but it's doing a different thing to what we get, for example, with Cat's impressions of King's Landing. Like we're we're getting a sense of the place as a viewer of the show that no character in the entire show, the closest we'd get is, you know, Daenerys on a dragon. That's that's the closest we get to like the view or, or the perspective of these places and even that's not exactly right. So while obviously any geographical location is experienced differently by different people, I, I think it reminds me a lot more of the way that different people are known differently by different people as opposed to different spaces are known differently by different people. So moving on, I want to consider some of the more purposeful attempts at placemaking that are contained within Kat's description of King's Landing. Uh, we get this lovely page-long passage that weaves between history and the present from Aegon's Landing to the the sprawling cityscape in the present day, as well as from Maegor's cruelties to 
salient signs of post-Targaryen life. And within this passage, we get a great sense of the tension between order and chaos within the human geography itself. I feel like this is best encapsulated in the contrast between the, the messy, unplanned urban sprawl and the, the carefully planned street of the sisters. With the former, we get like the imagery of various buildings all piled one on another. Uh, the contrast between broad streets lined with trees, wandering crookback streets, and alleys so narrow that two men could not walk abreast. And this starkly contrasts with the street of the sisters, uh, which is described thus. Visenya's hill was crowned by the great sept of Baelor with its seven crystal towers. Across the city on the hill of Rhaenys stood the blackened walls of the dragon pit, its huge dome collapsing into ruins, its bronze doors closed now for a century. The street of the sisters ran between them, straight as an arrow. Uh, we will leave aside the present day condition of the dragon pit because that kind of undermines my point here. For now, besides that detail, we do get a sense of an attempt at order. We get a sense of meticulous intent and monumental scope uh, through descriptions like straight as an arrow. Like that's very purposefully description of space there. Like it's very carefully constructed in this way. And indeed, it is quite reminiscent of some of the monumental cores that we might be familiar in real life, such as uh, some national capitals. For example, um, Washington, D.C. Satan Sorrell, who is a friend of the pod, check out his episode on Trope Watchers. He brought to my attention how DC's monumental core is designed to symbolically stitch the American North and South together. Um, so the human geography itself embodying post-Civil War harmony and reunification. And please hear the quotation marks around both of those words. Um, so you have the, the Lincoln Memorial in the North and the Arlington House, also known as the Robert E. Lee Memorial in the South. And these are connected together by the Memorial Avenue and Arlington Memorial Bridge. Yeah, and Scott, in preparing for this episode, you also reminded me that um, there is a similar kind of setup in Paris and it led me to brush up on my Parisian geography, which was always pretty minimal, to be honest. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I have been to these places at least, so I can kind of visualize it, whereas I have not been to the US, so I can't I can't say anything about that. But yeah, so the, the Arc de Triomphe, or specifically the Arc de Triomphe de l'Etoile in Paris, is a military monument. The monument itself honors uh, those who fought and died in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Um, but the monument itself also has ties to some other wars, so like the World Wars, it sits on top of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier from World War One. It's in the middle of a road junction that is now being renamed as Place Charles de Gaulle, so named after President Charles de Gaulle, who was a major figure in both wars, but especially World War Two. And this particular arch, so it was designed in 1806, and it sits at the end of the Champs-Élysées, but it's at the... If you look at a map, it's pretty full on. So it's at the intersection of 12 symmetrical radiating avenues, as they say. Um, so it goes along six axes. And it also sits at the intersection of three arrondissements, which are kind of the areas in Paris. It also sits upon the Axe Historique, which it's also known as the Voie Triomphale, <laughs> which is translated to the Triumphal <laughs> Way. So that gives you a bit of a sense of the the tone they're going for with this particular geographical setup. Uh, and essentially it's a line of buildings and monuments. And on the east of the Arc de Triomphe, you've got um, the Champs-Élysées, which leads to the Place de la Concorde, which is a square where there was a lot of executions famously, um, but most famously that of Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. 
Then you've got the Tuileries Gardens, which were originally the gardens of the Imperial um, Tuileries Palace. Uh, and then you get the Louvre. So historically, you kind of had this direct access that was running uh, between the Champs-Élysées and the palace. And then on the other side, to the west of the Arc de Triomphe, you've got Avenue de la Grande Armée. And then at the, the end of the axis, you've got La Défense, which originally had uh, a bronze statue of La Défense de Paris, which um, commemorated the French dead from the Siege of Paris. So you've basically got this long, 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 long axis running through Paris that is tying together all these like deeply military structures, monuments, uh, places that have this very specific history, either real history, because you've got like events that happened in these different places, people marching through these places, uh, but also monuments to particular military moments in history. Yeah, it's a very extreme example of how space (laughs) is being fashioned to be purposefully symbolic. Yeah, and of course, you know, Canberra's parliamentary triangle attempts this at a much less impressive scale <laughs> to Paris and Washington, It's funny, DC. when I was looking at the map, I was thinking of Canberra, because Canberra is, I mean, famously in Australia. I'm, I'm from Sydney, which is very much a city that <laughs> expanded, expanded, expanded with little foresight. Uh, whereas you look at Canberra, and it's so designed. And again, you know, it's all military history, it's political history, all being sort of symbolically entrenched in space. So again, I mean... Politicians are meant to look out onto the avenue and see the war memorial in the distance before they decide to send Australian troops to die. That's the whole reason why this space is set up in this way. Again, space fashioned to be purposefully symbolic. Alright, so let's stop talking about boring real-world history in places. Let's talk about the (laughs) fake. Um, So, the Street of the Sisters presents a very similar type of stitching. So, the intended meanings, of course, are highly referential to previous Targaryen regimes. So we get the toponyms, or the place names, that include references to Aegon the Conqueror's sister wives, uh, the Senya and Rhaenys, both in terms of the hills' names, uh, indicating their conquest by the Targaryens, as well as the, the street linking the two. They are the sisters of the Street of the Sisters. We also get Baelor the Blessed, who was notably pious to the extreme with the faith of the Seven. That's why the Great Sept is named after him. And then, of course, we have the Dragon Pit, which is this monumental dome-like structure that once housed the Targaryen dragon. So very reminiscent of the Targaryen regime, obviously. Now let's talk about the Dragon Pit. So it was it was monumental by design and located by design. It was not, you know, purely functional in containing the dragons. It's not a dragon kennel only. Magor actually began its construction after destroying the existing Sept of Remembrance, uh, which was devoted to Rhaenys after her death, because he was at war with the Faith Militant at the time. So its construction directly opposite the Great Sept was in fact originally intended to be a display of intimidation and power. And of course, you can certainly highlight different purposes in the meaning of other real-world monumental calls. Like, for example, in DC, I think the monument that's re- representing the South, the Arlington House, was originally heritage listed to prevent Robert E. Lee from actually coming home. So it was actually a means of excluding a figure of the South initially. And of course, you know, if you are an African-American, that would be a very different experience of space too. Ultimately, the Street of the Sisters came to be read as this sort of symbolic and material linkage between the symbol and source of the Targaryen power in the Dragon Pit, uh, and the symbol and arguable centre of Westeros' religious power in the Great Sept of Baelor. Indeed, several actions by J. Harris I, who was Magor's successor, which included finishing the Dragon Pit itself, 
uh, can be read as deliberately encouraging this understanding after he ushered in truce with the faith, after Magor's chaos. But of course, the Dragon Pit is in ruins now, so obviously this deliberate placemaking by no means exhausts the entire scope of spatial meaning uh, and experience. In fact, the Dragon Pit being in ruins fundamentally undermines its intended purpose as a place. It is now symbolic of the post-Targaryen era. It was destroyed during a historic riot by the common folk during the Dance of Dragons, which also purged the remaining dragons contained within. And this effectively precipitated the eventual downfall of the Targaryen regime itself a century later. It is interesting that this riot was largely stoked by the preachings of a nameless follower of the faith, simply called the Shepherd. So in a way, we can read this rupture in the symbolic relationship between religious and royal power as embodied geographically as a rupture that is still being felt, as we can see with the way in which things happen throughout the series, with the books that we have. But what, but what is really important in the circumstances of the riot is that place, the Dragon Pit, came to signify something else entirely different from what was intended for the rioters. They viewed it as meaning something else. So it's just one example of the multiplicity of spatial experiences. Doreen Massey, the late British social scientist and geographer, notes that dominant understandings of place have tended to emphasize stasis or fixedness or a sense of timelessness in terms of what place means. Quote, it is a view of place as bounded, as in various ways of a site of an authenticity, as singular, fixed, and unproblematic in its identity. But of course, we are not encountering King's Landing from a God's eye view. We're not reading it detached from the lived experience on the ground or within space. We are seeing King's Landing through cat's eyes. And through it, we can begin to unpick this notion of fixedness uh, when it comes to place and experiences of it. So Mia, what did you notice about Kat's initial experiences of King's Landing? It was interesting to read this kind of initial introduction to King's Landing that we get with this framing in mind. Um, this idea of place is like the kind of fundamental thing that we're exploring because the way that Kat understands King's Landing really does speak to some of the ideas that we've been speaking about so far. So Kat's first thoughts about King's Landing are all framed by this long history that it has. So it's 300 years old before there was King's Landing, the, the hills upon which King's Landing sits were covered in forest. And Kat thinks about the fact that this is where Aegon the Conqueror first sailed to from Dragonstone with his army. The highest hill is where Aegon had built a, a quote, crude readout of wood and earth and i had to look up what a readout is <laughs> which is it's essentially it's a temporary fort that was used as a strategic position of retreat so with this in mind this kind of history that we're connecting king's landing to through cat's point of view is a very particular history and it's one that begins at a point of war and conquest from a foreign leader so we don't really get a sense of the significance, actually we don't at all get a sense of the significance of the forests that existed before Aegon came, or the lives of the fisherfolk who lived on the north shore of the Blackwater Rush. There is almost certainly a very long and complex and cultured history before that 300 year mark, but we don't get that. For Cat, the history of King's Landing begins at that point of, of conquest. 
I, I find it interesting as well that we get a sense of the crude readout. So this suggests that King's Landing as a place existed before the buildings that we have today, but not before Aegon's arrival. So again, Aegon arriving is when King's Landing began, not when the buildings that we now have started to be built. So place here is neither geography nor building, it's something else. We also get a sense of the character of King's Landing through Kat's description. The first description we get begins... Now the city covered the shore as far as Catelyn could see. Mansers and arbors and granaries, brick storehouses and timbered inns and merchant stalls, taverns and graveyards and brothels, all piled one on the other. She could hear the clamour of the fish market even at this distance. Between the buildings were broad roads lined with trees, wandering crookback streets and alleys so narrow that two men could not walk abreast. So from this description, we get a sense of a vibrant and bustling and quite claustrophobic city. So we've got this idea of all these buildings, some of them distinctly city-like, um, and they're all piled on one another is the phrase that Kat uses. And we also get a contrast of these broad roads lined with trees against the idea of the wandering crookback streets and the narrow alleys, which again is kind of giving us a bit of a picture of the diversity of people and business that takes place in King's Landing. So we probably have some fairly well-off people conducting their business in these big broad roads um, with the trees and then on the other side we've got most likely the poorer workers and also possibly shadier characters operating in these back streets. Kat also describes the different vessels at the harbour. So we have the deep water fishing boats, the river runners, the ferries, the trading galleys, the warships, all sitting in the water together. And it's giving us a sense that there are many different kinds of peoples that are in this space. There's lots of different kind of work that is being done in this one place. And then we get to the description of the Red Keep. So we get, quote, seven huge drum towers crowned with iron rampants, an immense grim barbican, vaulted halls and covered bridges, barracks and dungeons and granaries, massive curtain walls studded with archers' nests, all fashioned of pale red stone. Aegon the Conqueror had commanded it built. His son, Mago the Cruel, had seen it completed. After he had taken the heads of every stonemason, woodworker and builder who had labelled on it. Only the blood of the dragon would ever know the secrets of the fortress the dragon lords had built, he vowed. Yet now the banners that flew from its battlements were golden, not black. And where the three-headed dragon had once breathed fire, now pranced the crown stag of House Baratheon. So once again here, we're getting this history that is tied to Aegon, also his son in this case. And, and in this case, the Red Keep is even sitting on Aegon's hill. Like, Aegon is a very important figure in King's Landing. So for me, I think there's this kind of dual way that King's Landing is being characterized in this first introduction. One is to a very military, violent, conquest kind of framed history um, that begins at a very particular point. Nothing before it is relevant to Kat. So there's that one history and then you've got the kind of current metropolitan, cosmopolitan mixing of different people and businesses. I really like how you pointed out this idea that King's Landing of uh, as a place, as a particular understanding of what it means to be a place, is not necessarily tied to specific buildings or geography, but there is definite sense of where it began, and it began with Aegon. So this particular historical knowledge that Catelyn has shapes the way in which she interprets this space. It kind of tempts me to put on my Raymond Williams hat, because it's very similar to what, count, what counts as history, what counts as culture, and one of the things Raymond Williams emphasized is culture is ordinary. So what was there before Aegon's arrival is still important, and still culture, and still history. 
And that's not the only thing that shapes her her experience of it. And it's also just because she has a particular understanding of its history doesn't mean other characters who also have a strong sense of the history of the place experience it in the same way. I mean, we can contrast Catelyn's particular relationship to historical knowledge to that of Tyrion, who is more of a skeptic. Catelyn believes in omens. We know she's a little bit superstitious. She's obviously religious or things very different to Tyrion. And so things like Maegor's actions probably do shape her experience of that space in a way that it doesn't for Tyrion. Gives a very ominous vibe to Kat's experience of that space. And of course, she's already paranoid because she has a particular understanding of the threat that exists here. You know, she you mentioned the warship she noticed in the harbor. That's laced with threat because they're the Lannisters. She does not want to be seen here. So she's already going in intending to hide her presence. All these things are sort of marrying up with this historical knowledge of of King's Landing being a viper's pit of spies and intrigue and politics and stuff. So these are very much reinforcing her experience of the space too. And then of course we have some less savory aspects of her knowledge of the people who live here who aren't nobles. So we get the xenophobia with Morio. I think it's great how she reflects on Roderick being like, we shouldn't use a Tairoshi barge to get here because they're greedy and we can't be trusted. She's so like, no, 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 Roderick, you're being silly and racist. We're going to use this boat. But every single thing she does, her interaction with Mario afterwards, they're all informed by the same prejudice as Roderick. She immediately suspects him of betraying them, even though it turns out it wasn't him. It was Varys's sort of spy network that uncovered them, not giving him the money, assuming that he was just going to keep the money. I mean, there's no, no reason why he would or wouldn't do any of these things. We get no indication of which way that would have happened. So she has a particular xenophobic attitude to some of the people present. She also has some rather classist ideas of the people she's interacted with. The sour crone is not a respectable <laughs> description of an old woman managing an inn. And again, she has that moment where she's looking at the bed and its material. She's like, this is not a feather bed, but it will do. You know, if it really didn't matter to her, she wouldn't have even noticed. Um, so she's still picking up mm. on these sort of class differences and that's shaping her experience of the inn in particular. Her interactions with Baelish and Varys also inform her experiences of space. You know, Varys has this sort of almost mythical, magical quality of being able to spy... Her opinions are shaped by not only, I guess, the history of his relationship with Ares, of course, but also you know, things I would argue are ableist and perhaps even queerphobic in terms of the way in which she re reacts to aspects of his presence, you know, the perfume, his dress, the way he's his behavior, so on and so forth. We get a lot more of that with Ned coming up in a future chapter. And then, of course, the uncertainty about whether she could trust Baelish, the whole history with him. Like, all these things are shaping her experience of this space, which highlights how this experience is particular to her, which means that other experiences might be entirely different, like the common folk who live here. And we do get elements of that later on, uh, particularly in the show with Davos and Gendry talking about King's Landing, particularly the, the crookback streets side of King's Landing and it's not this chaotic paranoid space for them it's more you know there's some warmth there which is kind of interesting and kind of highlights the way in which we can't really talk about place as a fixed meaning even though the vast majority of POVs we get in this capital kind of align with Kat's experience like there's not a lot of stability or a sense of security there. So Massey argues in space, place and gender that places are not fixed they're not static enclosures of meaning but rather quote 
particular moments of intersecting social relations, end quote. Which is why I kind of brought up Varys and Baelish and all that too. Morio, these are all parts of that experience of space for Kat. So Massey emphasizes that space is characterized by, quote, inherently dynamic simultaneity. It is, quote, a simultaneous multiplicity of spaces, cross-cutting, intersecting, aligning with one another, or existing in relations of paradox or antagonism, end quote. So social spaces converge, they diverge, they collide, and exist in parallel to each other in a, in a constantly fluctuating assemblage of experiences. And Massey continues, quote, Most evidently this is so because the social relations of space are experienced differently and variously interpreted by those holding different positions as part of it, end quote. So Kat's spatial experience therefore cannot be assumed to be universal. Indeed, although we get a lot of perspectives of how unsettled and precarious it is to be a noble within King's Landing, we also do get some warmth from characters like Davos and, and Gendry, at least in the show. But even within the specificity of the spaces Kat navigates through this chapter, those same spaces at the same time are potentially, indeed likely, being experienced quite differently by other people present. Okay, that's it for this chapter. We'll be back soon for chapter 19, John 3. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of The Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at aclashofcritics at gmail.com. See you next time.